0: Somewhere, between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world, and the other is in that other world, where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here, and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 16 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from BordersofSleep.com, featuring original stories by your host Seymour Jacklin. Visit BordersofSleep.com for more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer. production by Tim Wiles. And the soundtrack for this week's episode is from the album Countryside Stroll by Carrie Live, and it's available from magnitude.com. This podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Beth and the Emerantil Beth stopped in front of her mirror for what must have been the 20th time that day, and she'd only just come back upstairs after breakfast. She couldn't help herself. In just two weeks, she'd be leaving 12 behind and becoming a teenager. The way Mum talked about it gave her the impression that on her 13th birthday, she would wake up four feet taller with purple hair and a ring in her nose like her cousin's. Beth had other plans, though. If one ordinary girl could capture the heart of a prince and marry him, then why couldn't she? And she was quite sure that a ring in her nose was more the sort of thing for a pig to sport than a future princess, although a little more height might be useful. She stood on tiptoe as she looked herself up and down for the 20th time with quite an air of approval. It wasn't vanity that propelled her glance, but simply, oh, it was just those boots. She couldn't get over her delight in the way they wrapped around her ankles and gave her bear's feet, or the way she looked as if she was growing out of them like a sapling in an oversized flower pot. She had argued with mum over the colour of the socks, though. Mum said they were grey, but Beth knew that they were edging away from grey in the direction of mauve, and, well, wasn't that just another example of how dull adults could be sometimes? Beth! That was her brother shouting up the stairs. Hurry up, we're all waiting for you! Just one last moment, she stretched right up on tiptoe and checked that her look was complete. The big light green coat that she had put over her knee length summer dress had a pleasingly triangular cut to it that finished her off with the outline of a rather simply drawn Christmas tree. Mum, Dad, and Sam were waiting in a tiny semicircle at the bottom of the stairs as she came down to them. "'Honey, you can't wear those boots down to the river,' her mother began, but Dad, who was in no mood for a family scene on this of all mornings, took Beth's hand and herded the rest of them towards the door, saying, "'You're not going to swim in them, are you, Beth? No, good. Let's go, everyone.' The family always took the car to the river, even though it was but five minutes' walk by a narrow path that passed along the bottom of their garden. It was just easier to park nearby when carrying all the picnic paraphernalia. Sam and Beth sat with the picnic basket between them. Beth watched her brother squatting on the back seat with his feet up and his knees up near his ears, stripping bark off a twig. Lately he'd been quite obsessed with peeling twigs in this way. It annoyed her that he never seemed to get told to sit properly or to stop leaving a trail of torn bark wherever he went. Mum, Sam's making a mess in the back of the car. Mum pretended not to have heard her, so she spoke to her brother directly. What has that twig ever done to you? she asked. You shouldn't take green living things and torture them. Sam had taken his teeth to a particularly obstinate nub of bark and looked at her without stopping his gnawing. He reminded her of some sort of caveman trying to tear a piece of gristle off a bone. She huffed and looked away with the most haughty and disgusted look she could manage, which was exactly what Sam was hoping she might do. As soon as Dad had the car parked, Sam opened the door, slammed it behind him and raced down to the river. Beth hung about to see if she could carry anything, but Dad was not one to let the women in the family carry anything and loaded himself down like a pack horse. Beth dawdled behind her parents as they made their way down to their habitual picnic spot on a broad bank of grass, bound on three sides by the curve of the river. Dad often joked that her middle name should be Dawdle, as he said that if it was an Olympic sport then she'd get a gold for England. To tell the truth, she just tended to get lost in her own daydreams and forgot to move her feet in time to everyone else's. Sam was paddling just above the rapids with a green sliver of bare twig in one hand and picking up stones to throw with his other hand. Beth stood on the bank, watching. This is a good one, said Sam, to no one in particular, and threw a pebble high in the air where it seemed to wait for a few moments before whizzing back down and clattering into the water. When the ripples of its impact had dispersed, Beth saw where it had landed, white among the brown boulders. It looked like a pretty stone. She took off her socks and her beloved boots and plodged out into the cold water to take a closer look. Looking down at her white feet and the pebble, the movement of the water seemed to make them dance silently together. The pebble was about half the size of her palm, and it wasn't completely white. There were dark bits on the surface, Wow, there were dark bits on it. There was some sort of pattern that could be seen just under the wet translucent surface of the stone, like writing. She thought it might be a picture, but it was not of anything she recognised, no matter how she squinted at the lines. This was quite a find. She also suddenly knew that she wanted to keep it as a secret, so closed her hand over it and slipped it into her pocket. Mum was calling them to come and eat. Beth consumed a token sandwich for her main course, because she really wanted to get to the cupcakes without any delay. You must try and eat more, Beth, said Mum, passing her a tomato. I'm saving room for a cupcake, Beth replied. Mum rolled her eyes at Dad and said, this girl has an answer for everything, and insisted that Beth eat the tomato, which she would have actually enjoyed if it had not been forced on her. After lunch, Mum and Dad disappeared into their books, and Sam went back to the river. Beth found a spot to lie down under a tree in just the right place, so that when she closed her eyes she could still feel the light of the sun and the shade of the leaves playing hypnotically on her eyelids. She let herself have a daydream that she would grow up and go to university where she would meet a future king and he would fall in love with her she didn't think again about the stone in her pocket until bedtime that evening she was early to bed she just wanted to fall asleep quickly and wake up so that it would be tomorrow tomorrow there was going to be a royal wedding the whole nation would turn out on the streets to watch or huddle in front of their televisions to see their heir apparent marry the love of his life and make her a princess. She was extra excited for this was just what she hoped would happen to her one day. So it's not surprising that with this at the front of her thoughts she'd forgotten the pebble. In fact she just put her head down and pulled the duvet up to her nose when she remembered it in the wardrobe in the pocket of her coat. Making a big huffing noise as if she'd been rudely awoken she sat up in bed "'Silly me!' she said to herself, and made herself go and fetch it. It was still there, but when she brought it back to the bed and looked at it again by the light of her bedside lamp, it rather looked like a very ordinary white pebble. Even when she rubbed it and held it up to the light, trying to squint through it, she couldn't see the picture. "'Maybe it needs to be wet,' she thought." and was quite pleased that she had a glass of water by her bed, as if for that very purpose, she wouldn't have to get out of bed. She dipped it in the water. Nothing. Maybe it needed a good soaking. She dropped it into the glass and stared at it for a very long minute, but nothing changed on the face of the pebble. With another huffy noise, she pulled the covers back up, reached out and put the light out. Maybe Sam had stolen it and swapped another stone in its place, she thought, as she slid inexorably towards sleep. A few hours later, she was startled awake very suddenly. Was it a dream? No, she'd not been dreaming. Nevertheless, she had the impression that some shadow had come back from the land of sleep with her and was there in the room with her. More annoyed than frightened, she turned on her light. It cast a blurry circle on the ceiling above her, but there was something else up there, just on the edge of the light, a shadow that was darker than the rest. Funny. She rubbed her eyes, but it was still there, moving ever so slightly as if it was breathing. What is that? she mused out loud to herself, not expecting a reply. Then the shadow seemed to grow two lips like the silhouette of someone's face in profile and to her utter astonishment she heard a voice and saw a mouth move. A woman's voice. As soft as the sunlight through leaves she heard it. You must come with me, it said. Who are you? she asked, deciding that she must be dreaming still. You wouldn't understand if I told you, but I will show you, said the shadow. What are you then? she said. I'm just a shadow, but you must come with me back to the river and bring the Telargatus with you, came the reply. The what? she said. The stone you took. It doesn't belong to you. You must take it back. But I found it. It does belong to me now, she retorted with a giggle. She was sure she could win an argument with a silly dream shadow who clearly had no idea about the rules of the playground. Finders keepers, she said, as if that was the end of the matter. The shadow bolted into the darkness by the curtain and spoke again. Well, yes, it it does belong to you in a way, but you need to look after it in the proper way and put it back where it came from. Please come with me. First, tell me what it is. What are those pictures I saw in it? she asked. It's a Telargatus, said the shadow, and if you come with me, you'll find out what that is. As soon as Beth's feet touched the floor, she realized that she was not dreaming. Maybe she was sleepwalking or something. Beth had always wanted to sleepwalk like one of her friends had done on the school residential. It was hilarious. I'm sleepwalking, she told herself would it really be possible to sleepwalk all the way down to the river she'd like to try right i'm coming she said she put her coat on top of her pajamas and pushed her feet into her favorite boots not forgetting to put the very dull-looking pebble in her pocket once again i'll meet you outside said the shadow and disappeared behind the curtain and presumably through the window Beth tiptoed down the stairs and let herself out through the door as quietly as possible. She was surprised how far down the garden she could see by the light of the moon, which was a perfect sickle directly overhead. She spotted the shadow on the grass just above the shadow of her own head and followed it down to a little gate and onto the footpath beyond. The shadow kept moving in and out of the shadows of the trees just ahead of her on the footpath, until she was back at the spot where they had been picnicking earlier. "'What now?' she asked of the darkness, for the shadow had disappeared somewhere. She was surprised how much she could see in the thin moonlight, which seemed to slip its way into the darkest corners between the trees and under the rocks, as if everything had been painted with white mist.' So wherever the artist's brush had tried to define something, it couldn't help highlighting it. And the stream was strangely loud in her ears. "'Oh, Shadow!' she chanted. "'The Shadow has finished her work for the night,' she thought. But the thought seemed to have been planted in her head in answer to her question, as it spoke with a voice she didn't recognise as the voice of her own thoughts, and she knew as soon as she had thought it that it was the truth." The new voice in her thoughts continued. You must put the pebble back over there where Sam picked it up from. Yes, I'll do that, she said out loud. Perhaps she thought that if she spoke out loud then it would reduce some of the confusion about who was speaking or thinking or whatever it was. She picked her way across to the edge of the stream where a bank of water smoothed pebbles jutted into it. She took hers out of her pocket But just before she placed it back among its cousins, she crouched down and dipped it in the water and brought it up back close to her face to see if anything had changed. Yes, the markings were there again, and they seemed to be even clearer in the moonlight. Why didn't it work in my bedroom? she mused, again out loud to herself. Because the Telargatus needs living water to reveal its nature, came the reply. Again, that other voice speaking inside her head, with the authority of someone who knew a great deal more than her, and she knew that this, too, was the truth. She placed the stone back upon the bank where she had seen Sam standing when he'd said, this is a good one. She felt that perhaps there should be some ceremony about replacing it, so stood up and backed away, keeping her eyes upon it like somebody walking backwards out of a royal presence, where turning around was forbidden. She stepped carefully back, and back, and back, until she could not distinguish her stone from any of the others among whom it rested. Suddenly, the thought voice spoke to her again, for the first time without answering one of her questions. "'Thank you,' it said. "'Okay, that's pretty strange. Who are you in my head?' she asked, beginning to be a little bit concerned that she might be going mad. "'Turn around and you will see me,' came the reply. She turned to see the voice that spoke to her, and being turned she saw nothing remarkable. There was a cliff, about twice her height, that had been carved by the river, At the base of the cliff was a rock that seemed to have fallen from it and cracked and from the crack a pine tree of some sort was growing and twisting upwards. I don't see you, she said, slightly irritated. You're looking straight at me, said the voice. I look like a rock with a tree growing out of it. What are you, she asked. I am an emirantil, Inhaler of the day and exhaler of the night. A guardian of the web of Telagatai. You look like a rock with a tree growing out of it to me, said Beth. I know. That's why you've never met an emerantal before, Beth. Whenever you saw a rock with a tree growing out of it, you in fact saw one of us. This is what we look like. We contain both the elements of plant and mineral, In our bodies are both the stone of the earth and the heavenward reaching of the trees. We breathe in one long breath all day, and breathe out one long breath in the night, and you've even felt our breath before. As the dusk comes on, when you sense the air changing, that is because we have begun to exhale the sweet breath of the night. It has always been so. How come you're talking in my head? asked Beth. She didn't like it. It wasn't nice to have something else in your thoughts. "'I am just speaking the old language that we have in common,' said the emirantil. "'You humans have earth and heaven in you too. "'When I speak the language of earth and heaven, "'you hear it deep inside you as a resonance between the elements of your being. "'But I can only speak as I am breathing out.'" Beth suddenly felt that she should adopt a more respectful attitude to this emerantil, and that maybe it was not good manners to keep on interrogating it, so she stood quietly even though she was thinking of more questions every second. You were wondering what the Telargatus is, said the emerantil. I will show you, since you have been kind enough to return it to where it belongs. How began Beth and stopped herself again. "'Come and climb up here, onto my back,' said the Amarantal. "'You have a back?' she exclaimed. Then, sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. The curious little girl in her was being gently overcome by another Beth, who had heaven and earth in her, and a voice in her thoughts that knew more than she knew, and a sense that all the answers she needed would come to her in due time. "'No,' I don't have a back, anatomically speaking, but relative to you I have a back. Come on and climb up the side of me that is not facing you. Beth got up onto the rock bit of the amaranthal easily, and where the tree bit grew out it formed a natural crook, coming out parallel to the ground and then curving upwards. It was just the sort of tree trunk that she would like to ride, pretending that it was a horse. She settled herself astride this, and looked down at the river over the amaranthil's shoulder, relatively not anatomically speaking. "'We need to be closer,' said the Amarantil. Beth leant forward and put her cheek against the bark. Closer than that,' it said. "'You need to tear a strip of my bark off and chew it.' "Ugh," said Beth. "'That's the sort of thing my brother would do. What if it's poisonous?' It is poisonous in a way, but it won't harm you tonight. Just a tiny bit so you don't hurt either of us, said the emirantel. Beth picked a bit of bark off with her fingernail and popped it in her mouth. As she had expected, it tasted bitter and piney, and immediately she started to feel a bit strange and dizzy. Then she realised this was because she was moving. Upwards. Floating. She wrapped her arms fully around the trunk which was carrying her up into the sky. "'Wow! Where are we going?' she asked, marvelling at the sight of her own feet in her own boots dangling over the shrinking landscape underneath her. "'Just up where we can get a better view,' came the reply, "'but we can go anywhere you like once we're up there.' "'Show me my house,' she said. "'Please!' They tilted sideways and flew to the left." She saw the river like a runnel of molten silver braided up the valley and her own house half a mile away looking proudly through a break in the trees. Beyond it the lights of the town sparkled like the blown embers of a fire. They went higher. Little pieces of cloud floated past her, looking even more like pulled cotton when seen close up than from below. She felt as if she could reach out and grab one and wrap it over her shoulders but they slipped coldly through her fingers as if they had their own things to attend to and weren't just hanging around. They flew away from the town, and the land underneath grew uniformly darker, broken in one or two places by a pinprick of light from some human habitation. She could see different shades of shadow, demarcating woodlands and copses from fields and the occasional reflected glint of moonlight on water. They were heading west, fast enough for Beth to feel a stiff breeze on her face and in her hair, and then they began to slow down. She felt warmer as the chill of the wind weakened. Now, said the wise voice of the emorental from inside her thoughts, bite really hard upon that piece of bark and look below you very carefully. Beth clamped the woody sliver between her molars, and squeezed a little more piney bitterness out of it. She stared below her. At first she noticed a few dots of light that could have been remote farmhouses, but they were too small, too distant and too faint, as if someone was lighting single candles one by one in the valleys and on the hilltops and in the woodland clearings. As she looked, more little lights appeared to her, until she realised that the first ones she'd noticed were the biggest, and the brightest. For one frightening moment she wondered if she was upside down and rarely looking at the stars in the sky, but the other features in the landscape were apparent too. Nevertheless, it looked as if a glowing map of the heavens had been laid out over the earth below. The radiant points of light seemed to be laid in swirling lines and patterns, but every time she tried to follow one of the patterns with her eyes, it seemed to get absorbed in another that would distract her. Are those the Telagatai she asked. Yes. There are thousands of them. There are hundreds of them, the emirantal corrected her, and they have been placed there by wind, Water and ice and animals. And a long time ago by humans, too. Look carefully and see if you can see the web. Beth tried to sharpen her focus, but it was hard to know where to look. She was becoming dazzled. Then she saw them. Tiny threads of light emanating from each node of light and twisting their way along the contours of the land until they joined with other nodes, forming a huge web that while suggestive of a great net of light lying over the hills, also seemed to have its own internal shapes and half-glimpsed patterns. The emaranta was speaking to her again. The Talagatai and the webs that they create are as vital to all living things as air and water, it said. Theirs is just one of the many webs that sustain us all. They were moving again and picking up speed, and it seemed as if they were rising even higher too. The emirantal continued. There was a time when you humans knew and respected this. But now every day the web is under attack from much more serious threats than your innocent bark-tearing and pebble-throwing brother Sam. Look below you where people are living most thickly. The very earth has been moved to make way for them and there are hardly any threads left. Beth could plainly see the lights of a few towns, distinctly of a different quality to the lights of the Talagatai. The web was, indeed, almost absent in those places. Won't the people there die? she asked. Many are dead or dying already, she heard. They walk around and buy things, but they are dead in another way. Now hold on tight. It's a clear night, and I want to show you as far as you can see. With a whoosh, they swept upwards. When Beth caught her breath again, they were so high that she could see the sea both to the east and the west, and strands of light were even radiating out across it. The sky to the east was subtly lightening to grey lilac. I feel like a princess! She exclaimed breathlessly. You are a princess, said the Amaranthal. Always. They must have been directly above their point of departure, for in the next moment they began to drop, straight downwards, and Beth was able to see the familiar features of her own valley growing larger, rushing towards them. She held on very tight, but had to close her eyes because the wind was rushing in her face and making them water. Suddenly, everything was quiet again. She opened her eyes. There was her own dear river in front of them. The moon, much lower in the sky now, cast proper shadows from the trees and rocks. She slipped off the trunk down the left side just as if she was dismounting a horse. The ground felt strange under her feet. Thank you, that was... Wow, she said breathlessly to the emirantal there was no answer. The sky was lightening and just at that moment she felt the night being pulled out of the air around her and knew that the emirantle had just begun to breathe in and could speak no more. She made her way home. It was horrible. She knocked herself and scratched herself several times and got stung by nettles too. Every bit of magic had gone out of the way home such that the whole thing seemed completely pointless and stupid and she couldn't wait to go back to bed. The next day, Beth knew that something had changed inside her. She suddenly wasn't so hung up on watching the royal wedding on TV but she joined in because that was what they had planned to do as a family. And she humoured Mum, who wanted to giggle about things with her, while also being snappy and critical within the same moment. Somehow, Beth was rising above it today. She felt slightly sorry for everyone. She wasn't sure why. She helped Mum get all the tea things ready. More cupcakes, more sandwiches, and the nice china. They were going to have another picnic, this time in front of the television. Even Sam seemed to be interested to see what the bride was going to wear. ''Oh, here she comes,'' said Mum. The royal heralds put their trumpets to their mouth and began to play a fanfare. Beth was captivated by the light playing off their instruments. It was just like the light of the Talagatai. ''Oh, look, isn't she beautiful?'' said Mum, staring straight at the screen. But in Beth's mind the fanfare seemed to be for her, and she heard a sonorous voice in her thoughts. You are a princess. Without knowing quite what was coming over her, Beth stood up and interposed herself between the television and the rest of her family. There is something that sleeps in this land, compared to which all the red and gold of your royal occasions is but the hoof dust of a passing angel's horse she declared. "'What do you mean, darling?' wheedled Mum. But Beth continued, "'This poetry was coming from somewhere too deep to name. "'The rhythm of its breath is counted in centuries "'and not in days and nights like ours. "'The nearest word that we have to its name "'is glory, "'and it slumbers until it will be awakened "'by one who is worthy of it. "'And these piles of rocks,' she said, "'pointing at Westminster Cathedral on the screen,' and all that is done in them are but the games of children in the skirts of this one slumbering glory. Her little speech over, she sat down with a beatific smile on her face. You're a funny one, said Mum, not unaffectionately. Dad looked at her with pride and amusement in his eyes, and Sam stopped biting his cupcake just long enough to say that he wouldn't mind being a prince one day. Well, princes don't talk with their mouths full, darling, said Mum.